Hello there, welcome to Philosophize, and today it is Ghost in the Shell, uh, the 1995 anime. Okay, Dave, so before we move on to our tradition of the chooser giving a three-minute rundown of exactly what the film's about, would you like to tell us exactly which Ghost in the Shell we're watching and why? (laughs) Um, Wikipedia did a good job, but it's it's, it's still a bit confusing about what's a sequel to what, what's a separate iteration, what's a reboot, and which one has Scarlett Johansson in it. Right, yeah, yes. <laughs> all right, look, I'm not going to go over all that, but I suppose the best thing to say, just to give us a slight introduction, is to say that um, what we're doing today is Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 anime from Japan. And that is the film. It's the very first anime. And it's um, based upon Shiro Masamune's manga from 1989 to 1990. So it was originally appeared in serialized form in comics as a comic strip. And later that was put together as a a graphic novel. Now, in the wake of the success of Ghost of the Shell, which we'll talk about, it was a roundabout success, but in the wake of the success of Ghost in the Shell, there have been TV series, video series, a second film, none of which totally follow on in in any way, shape or form. And of course, there is also Ghost in the Shell, which was a live action film made in the USA in 2017 as well. You know, lots of versions and lots of different iterations of it out there, but we are doing Ghost in the Shell, original anime movie that was a game changer. There's no need for concern. Our country is quite capable of covering its tracks. That's why you need me, right? Depends on how you look at it. At any rate, any program has its bugs, and I would think that a man of your capability could cure our problem. You don't understand. We aren't even sure that Project 2501 really is a bug. Originally, the purpose of this project was to... Major Kuzanagi, Section 6 is in position and ready to move in. Major, are you there? Yeah, I heard you. I'm surprised you can hear anything. What's with all the noise in your brain today? Must be a loose wire. We're in the near future corporate networks spread out across the world and into the stars. Don't know what that means, but we've still got a world that's kept with nation states and ethnic groups. This is this is the positioning. And the main character we're going to meet is uh, a young woman who's a major in the Secret Service, so to speak, called Motoko Kuzanagi. And she is a cyborg. Now, what that means in this situation is she has a completely artificial body, and within that body, there is an organic brain, okay? And that organic brain has been overwritten or has developed its own consciousness as part of being this, this cyborg unit that she is. So she's got almost like superpowers. And so what's going to happen is she and her unit, um, she's got a small unit. Uh, there's this kind of big guy called Batu and a younger guy called Tagusa, they're going to get involved in a plot around somebody called the Puppet Master. And this Puppet Master is doing lots of nefarious deeds. No one knows who the Puppet Master is. 
But what the puppet master is, is a hacker who is hacking into people's brains and into networks and into various other different kinds of computer media and manipulating what's going on. When we're introduced to them uh, in the line of action, they're following some clues uh, coming through the phone network about where the puppet master is sort of like operating. They gradually find out that the puppet master is actually using hacked brains from a guy who drives a garbage truck. And so that comes to a dead end. In the meantime, the puppet master is trapped within a special cyborg body, escapes from uh, this experimental facility, um, and is eventually captured by Kosanagi's group. But what they find out is that the puppet master is actually no one. It never existed. The puppet master is AI that has gained sentience and come alive. Bateau, how much of your body is original? Hey, are you drunk or something? Easily remedied. Thanks to chemical implants in our bodies, we can break down the alcohol in seconds. No stupor, no hangover. We can just toss them back while waiting for orders. If man realizes technology is within reach, he achieves it, like it's damn near instinctive. Look at us, for example. We're state of the art. Controlled metabolisms, computer-enhanced brains, cybernetic bodies. Not long ago, this was science fiction. So what if we can't survive without regular high-level maintenance? Who are we to complain? I suppose an occasional tune-up is a small price to pay for all this. I'm afraid we've both signed our bodies and ghosts away to Section 9. True. If we ever quit or retire, we'd have to give back our augmented brains and cyborg bodies. There wouldn't be much left after that. I, mean, I guess one obvious point we could get out of the way is what the title of the franchise says. Well, it's attributed to a book called um, Ghost in the Machine by Arthur Cursor, who actually took the phrase from Gilbert Ryle as a critique of Descartes' dualism. Uh, which is the idea that the mind and the body are two separate entities and the mind somehow operates the body uh, where the body's understood as a machine and the mind is somewhere seated, perhaps in the pineal gland, which is uh, where Descartes always seemed to want to put it and um, operates it. But the two things are entirely distinct in nature, um, even if they're experienced by us as united in some way. And I think the film... It doesn't so much ever say that. It's, I mean, I quite, it's one of the things I quite like about it. It doesn't really lay out its, what we'd call its ontology in philosophy. It's, it's theory about what exists and um, what exists and how we exist. It just sort of implies it. People refer to consciousness as ghosts. There's one bit where the major says, I feel it or I, I hear it in my ghost, sort of in my, in my soul, in my mind, in some way. Whereas the I mean, okay, we're mainly seeing uh, the bodies of cyborgs here. On the one hand, the body is everything, because it's this machine that's performing these great superhero feats, as, as you put it. But also, it's nothing. There's a scene towards the end, which was my favorite scene, which is to make me sound really weird now, which is where the mage just jumps on top of the tank and then she's trying to rip something. I, I think she's trying to open a hatch or something. The force involved tears her body apart, her arms fall apart, and won't scream in pain. You know, it's, it's nothing. It's that full sort of 
um, stoic idea of the body where the body is absolutely nothing. Pain is nothing. Well, I mean, think about when Batu comes and talks to her afterwards and goes, hey, you look a bit kind of like in a, in a bad way. You're doing all right. And she goes, oh, I've had better days. <laughs> yeah. The body, we can obviously react, but she obviously hasn't got pain centers in it in the way that a human body would. Even though they look like human bodies, except that we're told they're heavier, they don't seem to give pain in any way, but they are portrayed, I think, quite well as total machines. And particularly the body that um, the uh, the Butler Master arrives at Section 9 in is sort of shown as like jiggling and malfunctioning like a, like a machine that's not working properly, I mean, which is exactly what it is. I think the film does very well at just sort of showing the bodies as machines rather than as something organic, which, um, you know, it's true to its title because it doesn't really ever explain. It does more than not explain. It actually resists it at one point because Project 2501, who we discover is behind this puppet master and never existed, um, says at one point, you know, talking about this life, you know, neither science nor philosophy can define what life is. You know, you've got DNA and it tries to explain how human DNA works. I've got data. Um, and, and, and I keep wanting to say the AI here, but this entity refuses to accept the title of being AI and calls itself a living, thinking entity. It's not artificial in any way, shape or form. I think that the, the film gives us so many different perspectives on this yeah, and then tries to actually refuse to say how are these things gelled together. At one point, one of the one of the people says, "We don't know what happened. Um, something went wrong. We don't really understand." And other people think it's all far fetched, you know. So there's something very, very interesting happening there with this kind of uh, wish of the film to sort of say, we don't really know what life is. We can't really explain it. There are points in the film which feel a lot like a platonic dialogue, or certainly a philosophical dialogue, dialogue that's apparetic, which are the, the dialogues where uh, Socrates um, sort of tears everyone's ideas to pieces and no one ends up knowing anything by the end of it. You know, so everyone's got an idea on what's going on, but you, there is never the answer. People give an account Project 2501 does give an account of it already. It's almost like, um, oh, it's been a while since I've uh, done work on this, but it's almost like David Hume's account of the origin of the soul is sort of like an amalgam of different forces. He says there's, the data has been going around and eventually it's become sentient and I am that sentience. You know, sort of like an emergent property out of forces almost, um, which... You know, it's it's their account, but it's not necessarily authoritative. No one seems to know. Yeah, indeed, absolutely. Um, the the major doesn't seem to know whether she is born of the machine or is or lived as someone else. I mean, the, the dialogue is odd. I mean, there's points where you know, the certainly things I'd say I probably enjoyed the least were where you've got like two people facing away from the camera, so you don't have to like animate the the mouths while they give exposition. But then I think one of the reasons they'll have had to make decisions like that is just how much talking is in this film. And it's not necessarily say it, don't show it talking. It's just that a lot of a lot of this film is actually just talking about you know, the the characters giving a narrative to what's going on, rather than us seeing what's happening. 
I'd want to argue that I don't think it's laziness. Quite the opposite. I'll give you an example of that. Mm -hmm. One of the times when they're talking quite a lot, Batu tells Kusanagi how they've come across this puppet master doll, so to speak. But why was Kusanagi late? We had one, I think, one of the most beautiful sequences. It's all done with um, a montage sequence of travelling through the mise-en-scene of the city, this strange city, which I believe was um, based on kind of extrapolating Hong Kong rather than Japan for when it was put together. And we get loads of lovely things, beautiful canals, then cutting into them. There's dirt in there. We see school children running in the rain with all these little yellow umbrellas, a bus in the rain, shop fronts. You know, it's all in nighttime. It moves into nighttime, rather. Lights on out of the shop stores and finishes the sequence on some store dummies. And through this, through this piece, we've got uh, Kusanagi traveling. And at one point, she's on a boat. And she happens to look up into an office window and sees someone gaze back at her. And this person looks exactly the same as her. It's exactly the same features. And a little later on, somebody's going to make the point that these bodies are a dime a dozen. We can get another one. So you've got this idea that maybe there are other uh, bodies of uh, that, you know, got different names, got different organic brains or however that works out there in the world. And that's the important sequence. That is the important. It's, and it's done totally visually. So I think, in a sense, it's a strange kind of mix in that way. You have got, you know, you have got these long talky sequences, but then equally you've got these other moments of some of the most beautiful animation you'll ever see. That's that's my comeback on that, I think, to you. That while I agree there are these long talky moments, they're there as a as a deliberate choice, as a deliberate choice, and offset those other moments. I mean, the other, you know, the other one is when Bato and uh, Kusanagi have a long conversation in the boat you know which is quite philosophical mm. and all of this that and the other um but that's preceded with a bit when she's in the ocean and it's almost like psychedelic dreamlike sequence yeah. of her swimming in the water and meeting uh, mirror images of herself yeah that's sort of the main conversation I, I was thinking of when i said that there are some scenes that are like philosophical dialogues which don't really seem to go anywhere but that might be because they are apparatic i.e they they don't resolve. There are countless ingredients that make up the human body and mind, like all the components that make up me as an individual with my own personality. Sure, I have a face and voice to distinguish myself from others, but my thoughts and memories are unique only to me, and I carry a sense of my own destiny. Each of those things are just a small part of it. I collect information to use in my own way. All of that blends to create a mixture that forms me and gives rise to my conscience. I feel confined, only free to expand myself within boundaries. Confinement, that's why you gamble swimming with a body that can sink like a rock? What the hell is it that you see at the bottom, in that darkness? What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. That was you, wasn't it? We've talked about the plot of the film. We've talked about the philosophy of the film. But let, let's let's re let's bring those two things together, Matt, by talking about the theme of the film. And I think the theme of the film is um, could be called reproduction. 
the possibility and, and the way in which reproduction happens. We kind of know this from, if you like, the denouement scene. So at the very end of the film, Kusanagi mind links to Project 2501. And they have a bit of a conversation within their heads. And 2501 says it can't reproduce in a normal way. Or uh, normal, that's, I'm letting my um, human centric mind take over my mouth there. It can't reproduce Cancel the way Dave. That, <laughs> can't work in the way that humans do. So there has to be a new form of reproduction. And that's really what's going to happen towards the end of the film. And I'll, I'll leave that to people who are going to watch it to see how that actually plays out. And I think this, this, this notion is first introduced at the very beginning of the film. But unfortunately, in the American overdub of the film, they change the sentence that Kusanagi says. I suppose it's worth saying that this film, we're calling it Japanese, but it is a Japanese and English, a UK co-production, co-funded by both. And it was the very first uh, Japanese anime film to be released in both Japan and in Britain and America at the same time. They hoped it would make anime mainstream across the West. But one line is changed. And at the very beginning, somebody's listening in to Kusanagi and says, oh, there's a lot of static going on in your brain. And in the English dubbed version, she says it must be a loose wire. In the Japanese version, she actually says it's that time of the month, obviously referring to menstruation. Now, that cuts straight into the, the opening sequence and we see Kusanagi's body formed. And what she doesn't have, while she has a body that is overtly female, she doesn't have genitalia of any kind and has no physical way of reproducing. And what this really reminds me of, Matt, is a book by the novelist Samuel Butler. This is a, a novel from 1872. It's quite old. And um, are you aware of this one, Erewhon? Have you come across this before? It's not well known. Yeah, I love it. Favourite, favourite book. <laughs> okay, excellent. Never That's really it. good. Erewhon. Never um, heard of it. It's a kind of Gulliver's Travels, yeah? It's um, written as if... Uh, it's not written as if it's Samuel Butler writing a novel, but somebody travelling to a foreign country called Erewhon, which kind of backwards with a couple of word, uh, letters moved actually spells nowhere. Clever. And he's investigating this land. And towards the end of that, that book, um, Erewhon, he does a translation of a text he finds from this country, and it's called Book of the Machines. And it spreads over three chapters, and it's supposed to just be a bit of translation. And um, really what it does is it talks about the reproduction of machines and how we should think about this. And this is 1872, mate, so it's, it's well ahead of its time thinking about this. So let me, let me read you a, a couple of sections from it. It is said by some with whom I have conversed upon the subject that the machines can never be developed into animate or quasi-animate existences, inasmuch as they have no reproductive system, nor seem likely to possess one. If this be taken to mean they cannot marry, <laughs> and that we are never likely to see a fertile union of two vapour engines with young ones playing about the door of the shed, however greatly we may desire to do so, I will readily grant it, but the objection is not very profound. No one expects that all the features of the now existing organizations will be absolutely repeated in an entirely new class of life. The reproductive system of animals differs widely from that of plants, but both are reproductive systems. 
has nature exhausted her phases of this power? And that's how he answered. He, he asked his question. He then goes on to say, we already know there's some weird ways in which things reproduce. And gives this example. Insects make plants reproductive. And would not whole families of plants die out if their fertilization was not affected by a class of agents utterly foreign to themselves? Does anyone say that the red clover has no reproductive system because the humble bee, and the humble bee only, must aid and abet it before it can reproduce? No one. The humble bee is part of the reproductive system of the clover. This argument develops and finishes this way. And the bare fact that no vapour engine was ever made entirely by another or two others of its own kind is not sufficient to warrant us in saying that vapour engines have no reproductive system. The truth is that each part of a vapour engine is bred by its own special breeders, humans, whose function is to breed that part, and only that, and the combination of these parts into a whole forms another department. So... What Butler's getting at here in, in this pretend book, in this pretend translation, is that we basically saying we do not know the way in which life will evolve. We don't know what life even is. Yeah, We've got so many different forms of life. You, you were referring to how the film kind of like tried to you know, interrogate that as well as at the same time refuse yeah, to give us a, a yeah. definition. And you can see why I think this film really does pick up with the questions that Samuel Butler is is sort of laying down in 1872. It's, it's an interesting way of, just as a thought experiment, forcing us to recognise how much we take for granted as fact are, in fact, interpretations and only interpretations. I'm saying, well, if you could look at right, reprodu reproduction as machines as kind of like where the, work, where the bees and the, the plants, you know, if you just change your perspective on something, then some things that you took to be obvious revealed to be not so obvious and i'm not i'm not sure how convincing it is as an argument itself now with the film but but like just to hold on to that point I, I don't think it goes any further than you just said yeah it's asking that question you know i mean it, yeah first of all it says how can we know what what way in which forms will reproduce going forwards and then give some examples of some ones that we might seem as very different from the human. So, you know, very strange yes. in another way, yeah? So it just gives another that as an example for how we, could, how we could frame it in that way. But I don't think it's actually trying to say that is how it will happen. It is left as a question mark. The same question mark that hovers over Ghost in the Shell. I, I would, that's what I'm saying. I think I agree. What I think the film does hold on to though, is well, certainly the idea that technology advances to a point where everything has changed and to a point where we don't yet know where things have changed. What you've got, particularly with this union between um, Project 2501 and the major as heralding something quite new, a sort of a new major, a bit like leaving Plato's cave, or to use the, or the, the similar metaphor, which is, uh, referred to in the film itself from um, Paul's letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, which is about how now we see through a mirror darkly, but the truth is going to come. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, now I put away, child just sings. There's some sort of change that's happening that we can't quite yet contemplate because we're not fully past the changing moment. Uh, so a great leap, in other words. Yeah. 
Isn't the film already saying, though, there have been, and isn't that what Butler's alluding to, there have been great leaps before? That You know, the emergence of consciousness in humans was a great leap that we still don't understand and can't explain. And the different yeah. types of reproduction um, have been great leaps, and we can talk about DNA, and we can talk about how things carried along, but there's still lots of mysteries. Just to reiterate the, the quote from Project 2501, neither science nor philosophy can define life. And that's, you know, that defining of life beyond the material or within the material or as part of the material has been the project of philosophy and science for a long time. I mean, I would put it slightly differently. Project 251's correct only if you look at it historically. You know, if sentient machines occur or the prospect of them occur, then philosophy and science fail to define life because something's happened that's challenged those conceptions, whereas within its own self-understanding, philosophy and science were perfectly able to describe what life was a few hundred years ago. It was very confident in that it's the changing and the, the surpassing and the growth of the human being and of evolution and life as, as a whole brings us into points where things start to not make sense and will only make sense if we put away the childish things. You know, we're like um, you know, Descartes' mind and body as a tool for thinking about what life is. I entered this body because I was unable to overcome Section 6's reactive barriers. However, what you are now witnessing is an act of my own free will. As a sentient life form, I hereby demand political asylum. Is this a joke? Ridiculous! It's programmed for self-preservation! It can also be argued that DNA is nothing more than a program designed to preserve itself. Life has become more complex in the overwhelming sea of information, and life, when organized into species, relies upon genes to be its memory system. So man is an individual only because of his intangible memory, and a memory cannot be defined, but it defines mankind. The advent of computers and the subsequent accumulation of incalculable data has given rise to a new system of memory and thought parallel to your own. Humanity has underestimated the consequences of computerization. Nonsense! This babble offers no proof at all that you're a living, thinking life form. And can you offer me proof of your existence? How can you, when neither modern science nor philosophy can explain what life is? So, by putting away the charged things of Descartes, are you saying that Ghost in the Shell, at least with its questions, is a more mature way of thinking this through? Is that a place we've reached? No, it's total nonsense. <laughs> that's what it is I mean I don't I don't think it's a you don't, don't think don't the question is asking I don't think it's the film's intent to make a philosophical contribution in the sense of providing an answer to these questions no but um, I'm not saying that I don't, and I, I, I think that I think as we were talking about earlier the film is actively resisting this and you said you know Project 2501 tries to account for how it arose but but even that, within the context of the film, is seen as being a, a narrative, a story, something that it's tried to reason out. And hence, Kusanagi's statement, the only thing that makes us feel human is the way we are treated. Yeah, like, like I was saying, the film itself resists the idea of an absolute answer to these things, and it presents um, machines as living and sentient in a way which would provide those sorts of challenges. What I'm saying is I just don't... The reason I said it, it's, it's, it's nonsense, is that um, that doesn't mean it's a bad film 
or anything, but that it, it's rested on a kind of reductio ad absurdum of Descartes. If what we are is just consciousness, is this ghost, and the body is just a machine, then the ghost and the machine are completely separable, and the ghost can be put into any old machine of any shape ah, as long as right, compatible okay. as long as we can hook them up a bit a bit like avatar avatar which is i guess this is kind of a, a precursor to avatar in a lot of ways in that you know if you can just plug your brain your mind into the uh, blue alien brain then suddenly you're a blue alien and you become at one with nature because your tail's got a usb stick you can plug into a tree <laughs> which is a hard drive that has all of your uh all the entire civilizations even the afterlife exists for the blue aliens because it has that computerized uh, mechanicized um, incarnation. It's almost like a poem. It's an exploration of what cyberpunk cyborg would be like in a world where Descartes was right. Ah, right. So that's the point I was trying to get to. Are you saying this returns us to Descartes? That's that's kind of where I was pushing you. Because at the beginning of our conversation, you seem to say that this film tried to move beyond that. But do you think at the end of the day, that's what it returns us to? It returns us to Descartes. I want to tie you down on this one. I don't even have to say I would return to, and I'm not. I'm not sure. I will leave this in because I'm. I'm currently not the editor, Matt. I'm just a uh, interlocutor, Matt, and I can't rewind and figure <laughs> out what I said. I don't think I said that it goes beyond ah, right, Descartes. Yeah. Possible, I did. If I did, I was wrong, and now I put away that childish thing. It's Cartesian through and through. That's a great critique of of Descartes, which is that what he really does he doesn't really succeed in convincing anyone that we are minds. He convinces us that everything is a machine and that this is the picture of the world where everything was a machine, where you know it's not even dystopian or utopian. There's no good or bad in it. It's just become, I mean, um, uh, the major says, if, if man realizes technology is within reach, he achieves it like it's damn near instinctive. Mm. You know, it's just the, the inevitableness of technology um, was becoming more and more machine um, to the point where the ghost that is the mind just plugs into which are any machine. That's why it's nonsense, because Descartes wrong. <laughs> there we go. We got it in at the end. 